Now, this is, um, these are going to be some key elements of a biblical methodology of discipleship counseling. So we can just call it that. It's discipleship counseling. You're really helping people, intensively helping people uh, with issues in their life. And it may be sin issues. It may be suffering issues, trials that they have. Not everything is always a sin issue. It could be trials and suffering like Job experienced. But there's a lot to cover. We used to do one hour per element. And now we have two to cover in one hour. And uh, it's hard for me to communicate a whole lot like that that fast. And my wife says, well, talk fast. And I said, well, it's hard when you think slow. My mind is like a thunderstorm, you know. One flash of light and then complete darkness. <laughs> so here we go. I'm going to, again, I'm gonna move very quickly. Uh, there's six uh, key elements that we're going to be looking at. I'm going to look at two, then Brad's going to come back in and look at two more, and then tomorrow morning, first thing at eight, uh, another two. So the key elements of discipleship counseling. So here they are listed, and they're alliterated. Dr. Wayne Mack alliterated them, uh, often referred to as, he he has a couple more in there. Uh, He calls them the eight eyes. Sounds like something out of Ezekiel or Book of Revelation. But they're just alliterated. We've kind of condensed some of them into six. So usually I start off when I'm teaching on involvement and inspiration or hope, loving care, loving people, and giving them hope. And Brad's going to do those two in the next hour. But that's usually a good place to start, loving, caring for people, uh, giving them hope. In this session, I'm going to look at inventory and interpretation. Getting to know the person, the issue, whatever they're struggling with, whether it's a sin or suffering or both. And then how do you interpret that biblically, what's going on? And then tomorrow morning we'll look at instruction, biblical instruction, and getting them to be a doer of what God instructs them to do. Uh, Implementation, sometimes called homework or practical growth projects or implementation. So that's what we're going to look at now. Now, before we begin, and I have a, several bullet points here in your notes. Just like I said last session in the seminar, I mean, am I dealing with a believer or an unbeliever? As best as I know, I'm going to get a lot of information here. But if they're an unbeliever, I can't counsel them. If you use the word disciple in place of counseling. I can't disciple unbelievers. They don't have the spirit of God. They don't understand the word of God. And they can't do what God says to do if they're an unbeliever. So you pre-counsel unbelievers. It's called evangelism. You love them. You care for them. You can talk about the issues, but I'm going to keep talking about God, man, sin, and the Savior and what it means to repent and believe. I'll I'll meet with them as long as they want to meet. They have to push me away. But I'm going to meet with them as long as they want to meet and talk about the gospel. But when they profess faith in Christ, 
now we can begin discipling and building and the confidence that the Spirit of God using His Word in the church will help individuals grow and change. So just like we said last uh, session, the key elements of the gospel, where are they at with that? I usually take a whole session, and I just walk through that with people. I want to know what they say, oh, yeah, I got saved when I was four. Well, what? Tell me what happened. I don't know. I just got saved. My mom told me I got saved. What did you understand? I'm not sure. Oh, I mean, we have, that's the foundation of growing and changing is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where are they at? Have they embraced Christ as Lord and Savior? And they need to know there's not a child's gospel and an adult gospel. There's just one gospel of Jesus Christ. So don't dilute it and water it down to make it easy. It's adult-like content that solicits a childlike response. Right? The gospel is adult-like content. Who God is, man, man's sin, the Savior, the whole substitutionary atonement, my sin, his righteousness. I mean, it's adult-like content, but solicits a childlike response. So yes, God does save children. But don't, there's not a child gospel version. Now, with inventory, uh, before I get there, there's a couple more bullet points under there. The Holy Spirit is essential in the change process. As I mentioned last, uh, we grow uh, by depending on the Spirit to help us. In Romans 1 through 7, the Holy Spirit's mentioned twice. He takes the work of Christ that he accomplished on the cross and resurrection and applies it to the believer. So the Holy Spirit's mentioned twice in Romans 1 through 7 about applying the work of Christ to our lives. We're born again, we're born by the Spirit. In Romans chapter 8, you don't want to end in chapter 7. You know, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I mean, you don't want to end there. That's not your life verse you put on a plaque. Chapter 8, oh, there's no condemnation. This is how we grow and change. This is how the Christian lives his life out in light of those truths in Romans 5 through 7. This is how the believer lives the Christian life, Romans 8. The Holy Spirit is mentioned 20 times in that one chapter. By the Spirit, you do this. By the Spirit, mortify the deeds of your flesh. By the Spirit, by the Spirit, by the Spirit. So it's absolutely essential in the change process, that we're dependent on the Spirit. And the importance of the church. There is more you plural, y'all, in the Bible than you singular. You know, I hear people say, oh, it's just me and Jesus. Me and Jesus. I don't go to church. I just don't need the church. Just me and Jesus. And well, Jesus is with his people. And on, when they gather, he's there. He is helping all of his children grow in corporate worship. There is more about you plural in the Bible than you singular. If you just think me and Jesus, and I'm not really reaching out to all of the one another's, I really doubt this vertical thing is actually going on. At least it's, it's suspect. So we need the church. There are three divine resources. What about four? Three divine resources. <laughs> uh, time zone changes from California. Three divine resources that God uses to help us change and grow. 
God, his word, which is the divine word, and the church, God's people. Now, they're not completely everyone, you know, the way they should be, but God uses his people to help one another grow. All the one another's, there are about 35 of them, 35 different one another's. Pray for one another, encourage one another, bear one another's burdens, and on they go. The next bullet point, the importance of meditation and prayer, uh, the disciplines of the Christian life. We must not just read the Bible, but think deeply upon it, thinking through what I need to learn about the Lord, what I need to learn to not do, to do. Uh, think deeply on our position in Christ. It should lead to our practice in Christ, our Christian life. And then how does that, what do I need to do specifically to change? Meditation. The bridge between knowing and doing is meditation. Meditate on the scriptures. And then prayer. Prayer is you speaking. Your, your heart responds to God. Prayer is not listening. You don't hear anything in prayer. Prayer is you talking. All four words in the Bible used for prayer mean you speaking. You, supplication, prayers, intercessions, petitions, thanksgivings. You're talking in prayer. You want to hear God, he has spoken, and it's his word. And then the reality of the spiritual life. I mean, the spiritual life, the spiritual battle is what the bullet point. We're in a war. People, why is it so easy to watch TV and so hard to get in the Word and pray? The world, the flesh, and the devil, they don't take sabbaticals. They're always on the lure. And the world would be philosophies and ideologies. And the, Satan has an ally in each of us. It's called the flesh. And Satan will lure us away by our own lusts. So his ally... Satan's ally in each of us is the sinful flesh. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life issues from within. So it's a battle every day. It's a battle. 24-7, it's a battle. But we walk with the victor. We're more than conquerors. We walk with the victor. He will help us. But it is a war. And always be reminded of that, the reality of the spiritual battle. Now, in light of that, here we go. In the, uh, the first area we're looking at is inventory or the gathering of personal information. Most of the counseling, discipleship that you will do will be informal. Most of it will be informal. You're just talking to people or your home or your apartment or um, you're hanging out, I don't know, Starbucks or somewhere and you're just talking and all of a sudden they say, this is what's going on, I really need some help. Most of what you will do will be informal. There are times when formal counseling will be, this is not something you know, like our marriage falling apart and she's cheating on me and all this kind of, well, this is not going to be solved uh, with one cup of Starbucks coffee. Uh, this is, is going to be regular meetings and we're going to have to get in and follow what's all going on and try to help this on a regular basis, a formal meetings and basis. That's when we have things like the personal data inventory forms and different things they fill out, and we get into a, a regiment here of there are things that we're going to look at, we're going to instruct, there's homework assignments, and each week to work at change. Don't pull out a personal data inventory with a friend over at your house. You know, they say, you know, just pray for me about uh, just having a hard time. Oh, fill this out. 
That will not work. You just lost a friend. Now, let's go to Proverbs, and you can see three Proverbs almost in a row that talk about the need to gather information. Proverbs 18, verse 13. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame. We've all been there. Right? We've all lived enough that we have answered people before we've heard what they really are saying. And it's foolish. You go, oh, I should have waited. I should have asked questions. It's foolish to give answers before getting the information. That's why we do inventory. Another proverb, the next uh, verse 15, an intelligent heart acquires knowledge. A foolish one doesn't, but an intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. And then look at verse 17. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. When there are two people having trouble and you only hear one side, uh, you make a judgment, that's going to be foolish. It's not wise. You have to say, I, I need to hear the other person. So in marriage counseling, you just counsel one, you don't counsel the other, or you don't hear from the other. You're gonna, it's, more than likely, you're going to be foolish in your counsel as best as possible you try to get from both sides so there's verses right there that just talk about the importance of getting information now why in first thessalonians 5 14 you could turn there if you you would like first thessalonians chapter 5 verse 14 There are three groups that the Spirit through Paul was addressing here. And it says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, or the unruly, admonish them, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. Be patient with them all. If you don't gather enough information, you won't know who's idle, who's faint-hearted, and who's weak. You won't know the difference. Sometimes they look the same. Someone who refuses to work could really be discouraged. And so, you know what? I, I, I need some food, man. I, I, you know what? I, I need a place to stay. I'm, uh, and they look like they're weak and need help. And if you encourage the lazy, sponger, idle person who refuses to work, you're in trouble. If you're always helping a person who refuses to work, you're giving him food when he needs to work or she needs to work to eat. If he doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. You follow what happens here is, I don't know, because sometimes they all look the same. They look discouraged. They're not doing much, and it looks like they need help. Well, there are three groups there, and I need to know if you're really weak and need help or if you're really faint-hearted and need encouragement or if you're refusing to work and you need an an admonishment. And the only way you know is by gathering information. It's like the uh, one-hand Jason. I was reading about this guy in Ottawa, Canada, He cut off his right arm 
with a very sharp power tool. He's known as One Hand Jason. And at first you call, you think, oh, what a tragic accident that he cut off his right arm. But more information that they gathered was he has been trying to do this for four months. He has been cutting on his arm, crushing the limb that he never felt was quite like his own. His goal was to become disabled. People like Jason have been classified as transabled. Their desire or the need of a person identified as able-bodied by other people to transform his or her body to obtain a physical impairment, transability. Well, there's a payoff for that. But you, you, at first you think, oh, I really feel sorry for the guy. He cut off his, his arm with a power tool. Well, he, no, he was trying to do that. He actually was doing, working on trying to get, get rid of that for some time. You've got to really do some work here. Of The more you gather, the better your counsel will be. If you listen to someone for 10 minutes, okay, let's launch into working through this, the counsel probably won't be all that good. It takes time. I usually spend two, two and a half hours the first time I meet with people asking questions, a lot of questions. So I just tell them, get ready. We're going to spend probably two to three hours in our first meeting. You think, well, don't people get tired of that? No one gets tired of talking about themselves. <laughs> They're glad that you're going to take that kind of time. Most people don't even have that kind of time to listen, and here you are going to get a, a lot of information. Now, what kind of information? I'm, going to, I'm just going to watch that clock because I've got to get through half of this and then half to the next point. What kind of information to gather? Well, again, Dr. Wayne Mack, who's been teaching and biblical counseling for many years. He uses a PREACH-ID, or PREACH-D, acronym. You want to ask questions about the physical. We're the outer man, flesh and blood, and the inner man, or the heart. The heart is the real you. It's the inner man. There's an outer man and an inner man. 2 Corinthians 4, 16, the outer man is decaying. The inner man can be renewed day by day. So there's an outer man and an inner man, and we work as a whole, as a spiritual person. Don't ignore the outer man. If you don't sleep well or you don't sleep at all for three days, you can begin to hallucinate. I tell students that because they've hallucinated in their exams when I'm teaching. Oh, what in the world were you thinking? Uh, so the outer man, think about it this way. You don't have this diagram, but it, uh, you can... If you want this, I mean, we can get that to you. The, the outer man and the inner man, and they influence each other. If I ate uh, 20 Hostess cupcakes for my lunch today, it will start affecting me in the inner man. I'm going to go, oh, I'm depressed. I'm in a, a sugar coma. The, and what goes on the inner man affects the outer man person who's fearful and anxious may have trouble sleeping. It's interesting how we, we work as one whole person. And you think about the outer man, all the things that can happen there. Brain trauma, what you eat, don't eat, blood sugar, thyroid, hormones, a tumor, cancer, sleep deprivation, drugs, legal and illegal, all have side effects. That's why you have a 
problem with your stomach, they advertise a purple pill, and then they speeds up on high speed of the side effects. Take care, just take care of your stomach. Then we call it a little different community and death. <laughs> Did I just hear that right? You, like kidney failure, liver failure, and death? Yeah. Some forms of schizophrenic, at least they're looking more and more now that they've discovered some things that are linked uh, to physiology mental retardation, autism, epilepsy, other proven diseases. I mean, those are things you don't want to discount. Now, chemical imbalance, that's a theory. That's not a proven disease at all. And doctor, I think Charlie Hodges is coming uh, either next weekend, the next month or a month after. He'll talk about all of that. It's just a a myth. Uh, They can't measure chemicals in your brain. They don't know what's higher or lower, what causes what. It's all a, and no one's saying take a sample and see what the levels are. And it doesn't show up in your blood. But outer man issues, but it's real. I mean, these are real issues, proven diseases that affect you, influence you. None of those make you sin. They influence you, they provoke you, they want to, I mean, you think you have to sin based on some of those. I'm sick or tired. It's so easy to sin when you're sick and tired. But nothing in my body makes me sin. That's all inner man. An inner man, there can be all kinds of issues there. Camouflage, fake, faking problems, God's discipline and judgment. For an unbeliever, demon possession. Obviously, spiritual warfare for believers. Uh, I don't know what happened there. The possessed with unbelievers. Possession can be done with unbelievers in the Bible, but not with believers. And then anxiety and fear and false worship, guilt, cover-up, trials, God's doing things, in the, and it affects the outer man. I mean, Elijah runs five marathons. He ran 125 miles, Elijah, from Mount Carmel to Jezreel and Jezreel down to Mount Horeb. 125 miles. I ran one marathon, and I thought I was going to die. And they were handing stuff out every few miles. Here's something to drink. Here's something. And he, bathrooms. I mean, whatever. He had none of that. He ran for his life. Five marathons. What, do you, what happened at the end? I want to die. So the Lord did what? Gave him something to eat. Put him to sleep. Not permanently, but sleep. Woke him up. He took care of him physically. So when someone says... Here's this problem in my life. What do you think it is? You, you ought to, this chart ought to pulsate in your mind. I don't know. It could be all kinds of things. We need to do some gathering of personal information. Also, some other things there. Um, resources, relationships, who knows them. And get, I get their permission. Can I talk with other people? Uh, to try to help you with the situation. People that could really help me who know you. Roommates, spouse, children. Their emotions, how they're feeling. Their actions, what they're doing and not doing. Their thinking. What, are they, what do they think? What do they want? Their history. Just a good asking lots of questions about their past. That doesn't mean you're Freudian. Freud... Blame things on your past. But to get 
data of people's past. Habits didn't start yesterday. Things have been going on for some time and have influenced them, not determined them, influenced them. Big difference. Our past has influenced us. It has not determined you. Your own heart has chosen to respond certain ways all through your past. Then ask proper questions. Extensive, intensive questioning. Intensive would be if they came in and say, you know, I'm really having trouble with my, um, uh, my health. Well, then you blitz the questions with their health. Intensively. If they said it's finances, well, then I'm going to ask lots of questions about your finances. And then extensive would be questions in every other area of their life. No sin is ever isolated. So just, I'm going to ask lots of questions. So extensive and intensive. Then you have uh, relevant, relevant questions. Don't, if they work in computers, don't start asking them about computer questions because you bought some software and it's not working right. You stay on track of what is going on in their life. I asked a guy, he was, said, man, I am a slave to ice cream. I eat a, a ton of it every night. And he said, it's so good. I mean, this particular flavor is so good. What question do you think I asked him? What, what kind is it? What flavor? That was not relevant. <laughs> and do you know, I, I, I didn't write it down, but I took a mental note. He told me what kind. I'm on the way home. My wife calls me. Could you stop and pick up some bread for supper? And I'm in the store, and I'm going, I'm going to check this thing out. <laughs> I mean, he just, he's like a, enslaved to this, entangled with this. I found it, little pint of it I got. I went home, threw it in the freezer, and didn't tell my wife about it. I didn't want to cause her to stumble. <laughs> no, I just wanted it all myself. So I ate it that night, and I went, whoa, is this good. I mean, this is like the best stuff I've ever tasted. So, yeah. (laughs) Believe me, I keep getting emails. (laughs) Students trying to find out what flavor it was. So I was getting, uh, I go to, every time I was at a store now, I'm getting another carton. And I'm counseling this guy. He goes, man, it's really hard to give this up. Yeah, probably so. Uh... I got this, and I took it home, and Zandra, you know, tasted it. Oh, this is really good. Go, yeah, I mean, it's not even on the market now. It probably had cocaine in it or something. It was was bad. Uh, (laughs) But here I am trying to help this guy. I ask a non-relevant question, and sure enough, if I was starting to buy this and, and eat it, and you know what Galatians 6 1 says when you're helping someone with an issue? When you have, someone's overtaken by a sin, you all are spiritual, come around them and help them. But what? Lest, watch it, what? Be careful lest you too be tempted. So be careful when you're counseling. Lord, help me with what I'm hearing. But ask relevant questions, questions that find facts. The what, why, when, where, how, how much kind of questions. When you say why, that's, that's a 
good question, but it gets subjective then. Why'd you hit your brother? He deserved it. I don't know. Why'd you do that? I don't know. It gets very subjective with the why. But the others get facts, those kind of fact-finding questions, open-ended questions. Tell me about, uh, tell me about your marriage. Tell me about rather than do you like your marriage? No. That's a closed-ended question. Um, it didn't really help me a whole lot. You know? So if you can open it up that they can share specific questions. I don't say, how did it go last week? Fine. Now, how about, did you specifically apply the four rules of communication in your marriage last week as a pattern? Did you do that? I mean, more specific questions. You get better information. We sin specifically and concretely. So, more specific. Withhold judgment. The Proverbs 1817 says the first one to plead his case seems just until the other comes, right, and makes full inquiry. Remember this young lady, and I'm going to have to really pick up some speed here, but this young lady comes around our block, and she said, oh, you know, I'm, uh, she's pushing the stroller with twin boys, and she was just striking up a conversation with me and my wife, and we were outside, and she says, what do you do? And I said, I'm a pastor and counsel. And she says, do you ever deal with abuse situations? And she rolled up her sleeve, and it was all black and blue here. And she rolled up her other sleeve, and it was black and blue. I went, oh, yeah, I, I have, yes. And she says, well, my husband's home. Would you be willing to go down there and ask him if he'd be willing to come for marriage counseling? Okay. So I walked down to the house. Slowly, as he was in the garage working on his truck and just wanted to see how big he was. <laughs> and I went in, just struck up a conversation, just met your wife, I said, and uh, my wife and I met your wife and yeah, just moved here, yeah, and he's a real nice guy. And I said, well, I kind of paused because I'm going, how am I going to approach this? And he said, uh, what can I do for you? And I said, well, your wife mentioned something about possibly needing some marriage counseling. Yeah, did she show you the bruises on her arms? Yeah, she did. She showed you bruises anywhere else? No, but I didn't ask. Let me tell you what happened. This is Proverbs eighteen seventeen. He said, I was right in there in the kitchen. This is about three days ago. And she's just ragging on me. He was using some foul language. And just, she's just ragging on me cutting me down, telling me I was no good, I can't provide for the, the family, and this, that, and the other. And I said, you know what? You're a spitting image of your mother. And he said, I'm, I'm at the table, and I look up, and my wife, she's coming at me with two steak knives. And he said, man, I grabbed her arms right there and right there. And I mean tight until she dropped those steak knives. Proverbs 18.17 is the steak knife proverb. (laughs) She didn't tell me about the steak knives. So withhold judgment until you get all the information. Mark important areas for further questioning. Sometimes right then is not the time to keep asking more questions. I'm going to write it down, come back to it later. Observe their countenance, but don't make a judgment on their countenance until you've asked more questions. Otherwise, Eli with Hannah was, you're drunk. I observe your countenance. You look like you're drunk. 
and he made a judgment, and he was wrong. You can observe countenance, but don't make judgments. Ask questions. Again, possible information from other people, but with their permission. Ask one question at a time. Don't say, uh, tell me uh, what happened last weekend in, in the fight. Uh, tell me if that's uh, a pattern in your upbringing. And tell me, do your children also fight like that? And then tell me, you, what, what, you just ask four or five questions, just one question at a time. When hesitation from a counselee to disclose what's going on with their life, there are a couple areas, three actually, that you can explore. Explore, is, is it possible that you don't want to tell me what you've done because it's criminal? Is it possible that it's sexual? That's a very intimate area uh, and shameful. Or is it possibly you don't want to tell me what the problem is because it involves a person. You don't want me to know who it is. Those are three areas to probe in when a person says, I don't know if I can tell you what the issue is. Then the importance of listening, some do's and don'ts of listening. Absolutely essential when you're asking questions, you listen to what they're saying. Don't be thinking of the next question. Listen to what their answer is, because it may help you with extra questions right there. It requires self-control because it's hard to listen. It's hard to listen when you're tired. It's hard to listen when there's other cares on your own heart. It's hard to listen when they're going on and on and on. You just ask what time it was, and they're telling you how a watch is built. And some people are like that. And some people forgot what your question was, and they're just talking. Some people talk when they breathe out and when they breathe in. Listen for things like blame shifting. Yeah, I did that, but when I hear but or because, it it means they're not usually taking responsibility for what they've done. Yeah, Adam, right? But the woman you, you gave me. And she's like, me? How about the snake? So listen for blame shifting. Listen for Christians who say, I can't do what God wants me to do. Or a victim mentality. You know, everybody's against me. I had needs and that didn't get my needs met. And so I'm just a victim. Calling sin sickness. So now I need therapy rather than repentance. If it's truly sin. Rabbit trails. People go every which way to get off uh, the subject and sometimes away from uncomfortable areas. Listen to what they don't say. I've grown in that. All of these things you'll grow in as you're ministering to people and discipling people. Sometimes they'll say, you know, yeah, I have three children. Uh, Man, Randy, he's in the ministry and he's just serving the Lord. And Karen, she's married to a pastor. Yeah. Did you say three children? Oh, then there's Luke. Oh, Luke. He's breaking our heart. He's just, everything we taught about living for Christ, he's going just the opposite. There's the place of ministry. So you have to kind of listen to what they're not saying. Hopelessness, just big size of life isn't worth living. Evasiveness, you're asking them questions and then they're going off tangents. Exaggerations turn truth into a lie. Exaggerations, always, never, a million times, those are lies. 
and they'll provoke anyone. So listen for those. He's always this. She's never defensiveness, where they start getting defensive, uh, which is often pride. You just have to say, I'm not your enemy. I'm your friend. I'm trying to help you. Don't judge another person's motives, which is presumption. There's no vacancy in the Trinity for you. Only God has omniscience. Don't say, I know what you want. I know what you're thinking. You don't, unless they tell you. Now, you could say, I wonder if you're thinking. I wonder if you want. But as soon as you say, I know what you're thinking, and watch this in parenting, it'll provoke children. And again, only God has omniscience. Now, listen, habits to avoid. Don't interrupt except if they're sinning uh, or if they're going on and on and on and you have a lot of questions you need to ask. Don't jump to conclusions. Lord, help me not to conclude until I've heard the matter. Ask God for grace to, let not, uh, to not let your mind wander around. So write notes if you need to. Uh, take breaks if you need to. Just try to keep focused. Don't do distracting things. People can twist their pencils around their fingers and click constantly and look elsewhere than at the person. Just be, don't just stare at them. Uh, And don't write, don't take notes and stare at them. That's even more weird. (laughs) But just be focused. Lord, help me to be focused. And don't hesitate to ask if you don't understand, don't allow them to encourage unfaithfulness on your part. I'm going to talk about that tomorrow. Uh, people who keep meeting with you, but they don't want to talk about solutions, and they don't want to engage in the solutions. They just want to keep talking about the problem. We'll talk about how to stop that. That's a professional counselee. They don't want to change. All right, now we're going to go to the next key element, which is Interpretation. Biblical interpretation. You're trying to look at all the information you gathered in the light of all that I've gathered about you spiritually. I ask them questions about where they're at with the gospel of of Christ, and then I ask them all those areas. I've got a lot of information. Now, what does the Bible say about that information? Now, what the world would say, well, that's normal. That's what they may say. That's just normal. Well, it's not normal biblically. Jesus is what's normal. Jesus is our standard. If you're not like Jesus, you need to change. We're all changing into Christ-likeness. If you want to study abnormal things or people or abnormal psych, the further you get away from Jesus, the more abnormal you are. So normal is not what is universally normal. It's what, who Jesus is. You follow that? And more and more, our whole culture is, well, look, what this is just becoming normal. It's not like Christ. So he is what's normal. So the process of interpretation. Now, examples of interpretation... Let's just look at one. I wish we could had time for all of these, but we're going to just look at one. The Gospel of John, chapter 9. The Gospel of the Process of Interpretation. 
Look at John chapter 9. This is the man born blind. Most of you know that story in Scripture, that account when Jesus healed him. And I'm going to go down to verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Now, if you just stop right there. You would gather, if you were in the crowd watching all of this, you would say, well, those parents are pretty good parents. You know, they're pretty responsible. They're saying, we have an adult son who now sees. And uh, don't ask us about what all happened. Ask our son. Right? That's like responsible parents. I remember when my son, uh, when he was younger, was afraid to talk uh, to people. And we went into a store and we were going to get my, my wife, uh, his mother, a, uh, a gift, a birthday gift. And he said, could you ask her where, you know, like the earrings are at? And I said, no, you ask. I'll be with you, but you ask. I mean, I want to get him to talk. And then it got to a place where our children, we had to actually, you know, times look at them and go, you know, they talk too much. But we didn't want them to get into that shy, timid, don't talk, don't respond. So we, no, we're going to help you to, to speak. It looks like responsible parenting on the outside. But the hearts of the parents is the next verse. Look what happened. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Ah, a little bit more to the story here. What people say and do is because what they think and want. You do what you do because you think and want what you think and want. And so just finding out behavior is not enough. I've got to ask questions. What's going on? What do you want? What are you thinking? Because that will help interpret what's going on in that person's life. So it begins with God's word, this whole process of as I'm processing this information, what does God's word say about the, the actions, the, what the people want, what people think? I remember one wife who left her husband with her kids. She took off. He came back from a business trip, and she and the children and their stuff was gone. We met up with him. He said, ah, it just has thrown me. I don't even know what to, what to say, what to do. So we flew because she went to another state. Our church sent me and another pastor and this husband. We flew to meet with her. She showed up to talk with an attorney. And she said, I've had it. I, I would, did not get respect, and so I left. Well, 
Desiring respect is one thing. I have to have respect or I will sin if I don't get it as a whole idolatrous issue of the heart, a lust of the heart. And she picked that up from a Christian psychologist who wrote on this in a book on how wives can get the respect that they need. So there she read a Christian book. It was given to her by a Christian psychologist to read, and she followed one of the scenarios, and that's exactly what she did. And it ended, she did not come back. We ended up, uh, we tried to do all we could do and pray, the church prayed, but she divorced him. But that's, um, again, what's going on? The heart comes out into the, the behavior. The letter A there, uh, compare all of the data and responses to God's word and the example of Christ. Again, the word is our standard. Christ is our sort of our plumb line. He's what's normal. Letter B, look for themes and patterns in the person. You may see she, she or he do these things and have been doing them for years. They respond this way. These are actions they've been doing for years. Habits are harder to repent and replace than a snapshot. Film strips are harder to replace than a snapshot. So look for themes and patterns. Be familiar with and try to use biblical labels. Remember one woman who said, I fudge on the truth a lot. I didn't tell that. Oh, you mean you lie? (laughs) I was early on in ministry. Not a lot of grace, just truth. (laughs) And she says, little white ones. And I said, well, I didn't think they can color coded. Um, (laughs) It it wasn't the best way to try to minister. I was just cut it straight. Truth without grace is harsh. You want to be full of truth and full of grace. Jesus came full of truth and full of grace. So look for themes. Be familiar with um, the things that they're doing. And they may have disorder language on it. You look and see if there's a biblical word that maybe describe this or biblical words that describe what's going on. Be cautious of using these different labels. You know, a woman who says, I'm just a perfectionist. Or a guy who says, I'm a workaholic. Those aren't good terms. They're not faithful terms. They're not God-honoring terms. A perfectionist, unless you're God, he can say that. We're not. And perfectionism is usually over-excelling in one area for attention, and you're unfaithful in other mandated responsibilities in your life. It's not a good thing. A workaholic, you'd have to find out why is a person at work most of the, the hours of a week. And it could be for different reasons. But it's not a good thing. You're trying to get into what does the Bible say about all of this. Put the data on the witness stand and ask it questions. I think there's a... This is once you get it together, you're going to be thinking, okay, so based on everything I've gathered, I may have several pages of uh, informal counseling, do I think I'm dealing with a believer or an unbeliever? If it's a believer, are they mature or immature? Are they a strong believer or a weak believer? Are they needing the milk of the word, or are they ready for some meat, as the writer of Hebrews talks about? 
Are they unruly, weak, or faint-hearted? I mean, what are they wise or they're foolish? What biblical categories could be used to describe them? And what does this person understand about biblical change? Because I've asked, so what have you done about your problem? Nothing. So how do you think you're going to become more like Jesus? See, I, I just want to know, what, what have they been doing? What do they understand about change? What's the best way to approach them? And do you know all sinners sin and all, I mean, all sinners suffer and all sufferers sin. At the time someone may have come in, so my wife left me, and I, I know why. I've been awful to her, and um, I was unfaithful, and all kinds of things a person could say. Right then is not, maybe not the time that you come in with a, you know, well, th- this area is you need to repent it. It may be that there's hope. There's hope. There, there is a Savior to go to. It, it may be uh, we can work through this. I don't know if your wife is going to come back, but you can become a godlier man. What's the need at the moment? It's interesting how the Lord approached people different ways. He approached Nicodemus. He knew the, the Old Testament, and he just went right for it. You have to be born again. To the woman at the well, the very next chapter in John 4, he didn't do that. He, he walked very carefully with her around lots of different issues. He's the gospel, the living gospel. But with Nicodemus, it was one way. He approached him differently than he approached someone else. So how, do I, how should I approach an individual? Should I be an encourager, a comforter, a confronter? The next two kind of go hand in hand. What does this information indicate about why they have not resolved the problem? They'll tell you, oh, we've been having marriage problems for 28 years. Why are you now coming for help? And usually it was, well, she threw out the D word, divorce. Or I came now because she left me. And often it's, at the, it's triage. It's an emergency room counseling. Oh, if you would have talked about the issues earlier, we could have prevented, possibly prevented so many things. Why have they come now for help? I remember uh, one of the students came and he said, you know what, I, um, he was a senior, soon to graduate seminary. And he knocked on the door, and I, I remember him in my classes, and he said, uh, can I talk with you? He said, I'm really needing some help. I'm struggling in the area with pornography. Uh, when my wife leaves me and I'm all alone, um, I mean leaves for work, and I'm all alone, I get on the Internet, and he goes, I, I just, I know it's wrong, and I want, uh, I want to repent. I want to grow in this area. I wonder if you could help me. Well, that's what he shared. And I didn't do due diligence to ask a lot more questions as I should have. I thought, well, this is good. I mean, he wants to work at this. He wants to repent, wants to love his wife and love God in a better way. About two hours after he left my office, I get a phone call. And uh, on the other end, this guy says, uh, let's call the guy that I counseled, let's call his name Ray. So this guy on the phone says, hey, did Ray come talk with you today? Who are you? I mean, I don't give that information out. Who, who are you? He goes, I'm Ray's boss. 
I'm his employer. And uh, I caught him on the internet with pornography uh, last week. And actually, a couple of times we've, we've seen this with him at work. And I told him, he either needs to come talk with you or he's fired. Hmm. Uh, Ray didn't tell me anything about that. So he, he led me to believe, and I think it was partially true, that it's been a problem, he feels bad about it, there's, I mean, there's the guilt, and he wants to change, but he left out what motivated him to come now. And so we had a long talk the next time he came in, because lies and lusts go together. Right? Lies and lusts go together. He'd been deceitful for some time. It was interesting. He was a senior. And I said, tell me about this. Uh, you said when you're married and your wife leaves for work and you're all alone. Tell me about the omnipresence of God. And you know, he could have aced an exam on the omnipresence of God. But it, he wasn't thinking that he's always in the presence of God. My wife leaves me and I'm all alone in the dark. Well, let's go to Psalm 139 and dark is light to you. Let's, let's use the scriptures and try to help you. The things you've been learning, let's apply them to your life. Number seven there, what does the counselee expect out of counseling? That's a good question. For what, what do you want me to do? Because you know what? I can't save and I can't sanctify. Neither can you. We can't save people. We can't sanctify people. So what are you expecting from me? I'll get my wife back. She left me. I can't do that. Help me become a godlier man. Now that, I can come in and try to minister the word that the Spirit will use to help you become a godlier man. But what are your expectations? That can be very helpful. Uh, You might want to address those things pretty quick if they're a lot of um, unbiblical expectations. As one person said, expectations are usually premeditated disappointments. So watch those. (laughs) Number eight, what does the data indicate about possible organic factors? It goes back to that chart again, the outer man and the inner man. A person says, boy, I just, I have been dragging, and it's been for the last, oh, about six months you're thinking, well, what? go back six months. What was going on in your life? You know, same thing that's going on now. Nothing really changed. There may be some questions there that can help you. Uh, they go, you know, I'm, I'm dragging, and it's pretty severe. And, and about mid-morning and about mid-afternoon, I, I mean, it's pretty low. Hmm. It's about the time if they're hypoglycemic, blood sugar starts dropping. My wife's hypoglycemic, so I, I know some things just from experience of what tends to happen. But thyroid, if that's not working well, or hormones, I mean, there's just things that begin to happen, and you just get a good physical checkup. And actually tell your doctor some of the things that are going on. And if they say, oh, you need this medication because you have a chemical imbalance, it usually means they didn't find anything. So let's just find out, hopefully they'll do due diligence in asking and running some good tests there. 
Now, prayerfully study the information. Remember that the heart of the problem usually, not always, usually is the heart, the inner man, what I'm wanting, what I'm thinking, and what I choose. Do you realize that there is nothing deeper to you than that? There's nothing deeper than the, in the inner man than what you want and what you think. Then your choices go off of those. There's no subconscious. There's nothing driving you that there's no way to know what it is. That's Freudian, by the way. Sigmund Freud came up with that stuff. The Bible calls it the heart. What you want, what you think. So guard that heart, for out of it flow the issues of life. And God's word is that two-edged sword that just cuts right in between, right? Divides the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There's nothing deeper than that. But in counseling, you can ask questions to draw that out. And so tell me what you were thinking. Tell me what you were wanting. What are they worshiping? 1 John 2, 5 through 17, you have the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And these things, these lusts, are very common to man. If I talked about control, do you like to control? Do you like to control people and circumstances? Oh, yeah. So a desire can become a lust, an idolatrous lust. And I, I want to control things. I want things to be certain in my life. I want to control things so I'm certain. That's what's behind OCD. So a lot of these areas of um, anorexia, some of the heart lusts in anorexia, the world would say it's a willful pursuit of thinness. And the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Disorders, a willful pursuit of thinness. Uh, the heart and the inner man, it is a willful pursuit. It engages the will. But what are you wanting? Well, thinness, appearance. What I look like is most important to me. I bow down and worship this thing. What I look like, it's got to be thin. And I, I lust for perfection. Everything has to be just so. And it may lust for food. I love food, but I, I love thinness more than food. And I love what certain people think, approval of certain people. Not everyone, just certain people. And you have these various lusts going on in the inner man. And they vie for attention. And you bow down and worship this thing. And you know what? If I want to be thin and I want to control that and perfection means I need to be this, this way and just certain approval of certain people, um, yeah, I'll starve myself. Behavior makes sense when you find out what people want and think. What people do, like cutting on yourself. Why were the prophets of Baal cutting on themselves? Because they believed that they had to do that to get Baal to do something, the, pro, the, the idol in 1 Kings 18. So it may look strange on the outside, but when you find out what people wanting and thinking and worshiping on the inside, it, oh, that makes sense. When they fear being kicked out of the synagogue, it makes sense that they said, ask him. John chapter 9. For tenant, uh, form tentative interpretations, 
This is uh, on page, well, I don't know what page it is, but on the page four of my notes. So just Abraham lied because he feared losing his life is why he lied about his wife Sarah being his sister. Abraham didn't have a problem with lying. He had a problem with fear or being critical or sometimes in the area of depression and anxiety, all these just interpretations. Maybe this was going on outside because it's what they wanted inside. You could ask yourself um, things like, how are they processing the truths of the gospel? You have that there in number three. I wish I had more time, but I'm uh, really out of time. To them, is the gospel all about do and don't do things? Is all about do and don't do? Life to them, the Christian life, is do this and don't do this. It's all about, they're, they're imbalanced. If they're not careful, they can get over into legalism. Or, to them is the gospel truths, living in the light of the gospel. It's all about who I am in Jesus, my identity in Jesus, and he loves me. I'm sealed, I'm adopted, this is wonderful. But it doesn't go anywhere. They don't do anything with that. They just all the position without the practice. Or is it balanced? Who I am in Christ leads to how I live for Christ. Position leads to practice, as the Bible presents it that way. Also there, if it's a medical diagnosis is made. Those are three questions, and Dr. Hodges will go into those more when he teaches. But those are some questions you can ask a a physician who says you have a chemical imbalance. There's nothing proven. And then test the validity of your tentative uh, uh, interpretations. And then you have a strategy and a plan. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that uh, tomorrow, the strategy and plan. It's a progression of sessions that you have in your notes that I'll look at tomorrow along with a three trees diagram, the cross and two trees. I'll talk more about that tomorrow. But this, it, it just, uh, this, Lord, help me with all the information. You gather it, you sort of put it together, and then you run it by the individual. What do you think? Because they've shared all of that. They've shared, this is what I'm doing, not doing. This is what I want. This is what I think. And you're just sharing it right back with them. What do you think? This is sort of making sense. And that's where they say, well, no, I don't even know where you came up with that. Or they say, that does. I've never looked at things this way, and we'll look at that tomorrow. It's just sort of interpreting it a little bit more as we get into instruction and homework.